0: Listening to the Games this podcast. I'm James Batchelor, Editor-in-Chief, and I am joined this week by Managing Editor Brendan Sinclair. How are you, sir?
1: I'm tired, to be honest. Just tired.
0: We were saying this just before You're tired already, and it's Monday. We usually record on a Friday, so this is the cathartic end of week. But we're starting the week, and you're already tired.
1: That's a bad sign.
0: It doesn't bode well, no. <laughs>
2: doesn't it tell you you've had a good weekend? Had a really exciting, energetic weekend, and you've sort of stumbled
1: into Monday a bit bleary-eyed?
2: that's right? Isn't, am I right? You might be right. No.
1: <laughs> no, you are not right. But that was one valid interpretation.
0: <laughs> I was going to be optimistic. That was also a surprise intro from a, a rare appearance from our head of B2B, Christopher Dring. Uh, thank you for coming in and ruining my attempt to introduce everyone once at a time. How are you doing? I'm
2: all right. <laughs> Sorry about that, James.
0: That's fine. It's fine.
2: I've missed your new stick yeah i'm I'm okay i'm i'm also really tired but i think that's because i've just it's just monday and it's you know it's been a exciting weekend full of wonderful things that you did (laughs) i went running on sunday and i've woken up tired i think that's that's what it is
0: and the lesson is never exercise
2: (laughs) i will say though i got to inbox zero about an hour and a half ago it's not it's not there now but um that that put me in a in good spirits
0: My inbox has been over 450 for about a week and a half now, and every time I'm starting to make a dent, it just increases again. And my my goal was this week, inbox zero, and then I remembered I've booked two days off work. So to anyone listening to this wondering why the hell I haven't replied to your email, that is why – is because I haven't replied to anyone. If you two are tired, this does not bode well for our discussion today. This is going to sound cheesy as hell, but it's come to me. We are putting the biz back into the biz podcast. We're going to be talking Q1 financials. So I say Q1. I mean Q1 fiscal year, so April to June 2021. For some people, that's Q2. For some people, that's Q4. I don't know of anyone that, out there that's Q3, but I'm sure there's someone. This is largely because the Activision Blizzard lawsuit we have been covering extensively, uh, certainly on the last three podcasts, I think, and there's no kind of notable new development in the overall story. There's certainly fresh reports of, of awfulness coming out of that company, and you can find all of those at gamestreet.biz. But today, we thought we'd collect the various kind of financial results that have come out over the past few weeks, particularly the ones from the biggest firms. Have a look at the, uh, the trends and the the patterns we're kind of seeing, because I think in in this case, this is a particularly interesting quarter to analyse. This is the first full quarter of financial results that compare to the first full quarter where the majority of the world was in some level of lockdown or certainly some level of COVID restrictions. So we obviously had that massive games industry boost last year of everyone is at home playing video games, engaging with digital entertainment um, a lot more than they would previous years. There were spikes in console sales. There were spikes in digital sales. So a lot of companies last year around this time were reporting record results. So we're going to take a closer look and see how those companies are doing this year. By and large, everyone is still doing well. Everyone has some forms of increase here and there. But equally, vast majority of companies have at least one indicator that is down in comparison year on year to Q1 or fiscal Q1 last year. Obviously, that is partly due to the pandemic, but there are also other reasons which we can go into uh, as we go. The one exemption we'll throw in at the start here is um, Zynga is... Entirely up across the board, but even they have warned. Kind of, there's some kind of softening in the results. I think perhaps the growth has slowed down. Brendan, I believe you covered this one, so perhaps your best kind of summarize what what's happening at Zynga.
1: Yeah, Zynga, um, I thought was was interesting. All their numbers were up. Their bookings were only slightly above their guidance, though, and they they warned investors that especially towards the end of the quarter, they were seeing some softness in the business. They blamed it on two things. One, the, the great reopening, restrictions lifting, and people kind of going back to doing other things with their time besides gaming. And then the other was Apple's IDFA privacy changes because they said that raised the cost of user acquisition. And as a result, Zynga just kind of decided that's too expensive for, for the return that we're looking for. So they scaled back their user acquisition expenditures. They think some of that is going to get better. Uh, they believe that the cost for user acquisition will normalize, even though it's not like Apple's going to be changing their privacy policy and walking that back anytime soon. Then with the pandemic issue, they're just kind of bracing for sort of a return to not quite normal for the business. This is something a lot of the companies did this quarter, is that they said, okay, things are down against you know the year-ago quarter, But if you look at the two-years-ago quarter compared to 2019, we're still well above that. So Zynga and and many others were really confident that they are retaining some of the gains they made. Now, Zynga in particular said that the declines that they're seeing, since they track everyone, they can tell that it's the the cohort of people who suddenly became active uh, in about March-April 2020. Those are the people who are now playing less at a noticeably higher rate than their, their long-time users. So it's, it's pretty clear they're giving back some of the gains that they made. Even looking at those numbers, they see a, the, a lot of that cohort that came in with the pandemic has sort of transitioned into being long-term users for them. So that's, that's their, hey, everything is great kind of take on it. One thing that I'm a little concerned about, though, is that they were saying uh, Merge Dragons and Merge Magic, two of the games that, that came along when they acquired Graham Games in 2018, they've been declining, and they're expected to decline in the third quarter and for the full year. What concerns me about that is that for the last three years, basically, Zynga has been this, like, hooray turnaround growth story, right? Where where the revenues are just going sky high, bookings are amazing, and part of that has been driven by their acquisitions, like Graham Games, Small Giant, Rollick, Chart Boost is the most recent one. And if you're buying companies, it's kind of it's it's not super difficult to keep your revenues going up because all of a sudden you have a new company contributing to everything. The problem is Graham Games and, and Small Giant in particular, their games were overperforming. And that doesn't sound like a problem, but the deals that they made to get those games they had contingent considerations after the fact. So like, you know, if, if the games meet these targets in these quarters, then we're going to give the people we bought the company from extra money. Uh, and those acquisition-related expenses were really adding up. And so for the last three years, Zynga has posted just loss after loss after loss. There's been a couple gains, but for the most part, it's it's just been kind of brutal on like the bottom line for the company in three years they've lost a total of 327 million dollars they're projecting a third quarter net loss of 110 million and the strategy that they've used to keep you know the bookings and revenue going up and kind of keep that like yeah we've got all this momentum story going is is they acquire the companies and then these contingent considerations on the back end of the companies when they perform well have been absolutely murdering the bottom line. And now, now that they're finally kind of out from under the contingent considerations for Graham games, I believe that might have ended last quarter or something, to have the, the games that were powering that, Merge Dragons and Merge Magic, to have them all of a sudden declining, I find that concerning because the boost that those things gave you was kind of squandered as far as profitability goes. They've seen declines with some of their series before, you know, Zynga Poker and Words with Friends. You know, they've gone up and they've gone down, but they've come back up. And and they could post record quarters this year, next year, year after, whatever. And I wouldn't be terribly surprised. They're their forever franchises that they've been able to kind of you know, juice again and again and again. I'm not sure if something like merge dragons and merge magic I'm not sure if those are as well suited to being forever franchises like that. And as a result, I'm I'm really curious to see what happens with Zynga and the strategy going forward and if these acquisitions that they made, which had things looking pretty rosy for a few years, they were certainly not concerned about the losses they were posting and investors didn't seem to be either. I'm curious to see if that's going to come back and bite them going forward. I've asked them if they're going to like change their contingent consideration strategy when they acquire companies, and it kind of comes down to like a company-by-company company difference. Most recently, um, when they announced their, their revenues, they also acquired Starlark, the developer of Golf Rival, and they paid $525 million for that, but they bought it from um, Beijing-based beta games and there's no contingent consideration there's no drag on their financials as a result of that i've asked them about it and they have not at all said we're trying to avoid that kind of acquisition you know there's a chance that they actually are considering it a little bit more going forward i
2: guess it would mean though probably paying more up front and when you look at the market at the moment the, the amount of money people are throwing around having that option to to pay i mean a lot of the deals i've seen lately not just singers deals uh, have an element of you know dependent on performance you know you might get this amount and this amount but i guess that's one of the things of the pandemic right you know i know lots of people in the games industry that got their bonuses quite nicely because of the pandemic but not because of anything they did it, it was just the market just did its thing and then the, those sort of people benefited from it and um, it's interesting actually really interesting
0: Specifically, in the uh, case of Graham Games, like yeah, I, I can't picture Merge Dragons and Merge Magic revitalising themselves to become the forever franchises. Because, and I know that this is an issue rife in the mobile market anyway, but Graham seems particularly hit by, or certainly particularly vocal about copycats. Like they, they have been from the beginning, like back when they started 1010, the amount of 1010 style games you've got out there that are not done by Graham Games and Merge Dragons. I have to confess there was a good six month period where I poured a lot of time, but no money into Merge Dragons. And now I'm getting so many adverts and stuff like, you know, years on later where there are so many different other Merge games. I think, oh, it's another one from Graham. No, it's not. There are so many other companies kind of copying that mechanic. What they thought it was a kind of a unique selling point, that unique mechanic a lot of these hit games, these very kind of casual titles, are easy to duplicate or or innovate around. But Graham, from what I've seen in particular, can be very badly hit by that. So when you've got these two games they are trying to drive and trying to keep, keep afloat and you've got so, so many alternate games with the word merge in the title and pretty much the same mechanics, it's hard to see that stage in a comeback.
1: They are working on a new game that features pirates as a theme, so... Maybe they're they're hoping that they can capture lightning in a bottle like that, but it's a concern to look for.
0: Most of the financials we've been covering are from the more kind of traditional console and PC space, because that's largely where a, a lot of our coverage kind of um, focuses. That's certainly where a lot of our readers are, and yeah, looking there, like as you say, like Zynga was the only one that had all their results up. Most of the traditional kind of console and PC platform holders and publishers, they saw at least one metric down. Some of them sell all of them down. Nintendo, for example, I'm looking like net sale, net profits, number of games sold, number of console sales. All of them are down year on year. But the comparisons are somewhat unfair, not just because everyone was at home last year locked down so everyone was playing video games but also could like the lineup you, going through these financials I start to really appreciate the really big hitters that landed between April and June or even like end of March so in Nintendo's case obviously you had Animal Crossing across the other companies you had The Last of Us Part 2 you had Final Fantasy 7 Remake there's so many kind of really big games that whatever has been released this year just has failed to match up to. Like certainly, for example, like Last of Us Part Two sold 4 million copies within three days. Ratchet and Clank sold 1.1 1. 1 million in I think the space of a few weeks. Returnal only managed just over half a million in a few months. It's been really interesting to see that it's not just, hey, pandemic. It has been like the quality of the lineup has been different.
1: It's also the console generation. PS4 has however many people. And then when you switch to the PS5, there's such a small install base. And no one's getting super excited about brand new p s four releases anymore. Some of this is kind of like, well, yeah, that's to be expected it just doesn't It doesn't help at all when it's like, yes, this decline is sort of to be expected anyways, and you're going up against a record once in a century fluke pandemic quarter.
2: The Nintendo numbers are brilliant, and I think that's the weird thing like I think nintendo's revenue's down ten percent, but previous fiscal q one it was up a hundred and eight percent. So it's down 10% versus uh, 108% rise. Um, um, that's brilliant. Nintendo, 10 in particular during fiscal Q1 last year. I actually blame the games industry a bit for some of the negative reporting in the, in the financial press because um, the games industry got really nervous about sharing the figures about how well they were doing during this point last year. They didn't want certain numbers getting out. They were clamping down on the charts, companies sharing too much information. They were just a little nervous because they didn't want the world to think, oh, lots of people are dying, but the games industry is going through such a resurgence. They didn't want people to think that, which you can understand that. But now here we are a year later and everyone's sort of going, oh, Switch is down. But Switch during Q1, it was like Christmas-style sales, or not quite, but five million consoles were were shipped in the space of three months during, five and a half million, I think, during the last, that's in the spring quarter (laughs) when no one buys anything. Animal Crossing did more in like three weeks than any previous Animal Crossing has ever done in its entire lifespan. That's the result of that. Yes, the game's popular console already as well going into it. But it was that was the lockdown boom. And I think what we what I've seen from the financials I'm looking at, and there are, as Brendan points out, like PlayStation numbers, it's almost entirely because of the generation switch. It's very little to do with anything else. But, uh, PS4 had a particularly good quarter, uh, during this uh, unusually good one in the year before uh, uh, it gets replaced. But even so, it was always going to look like that. I think there's only been three consoles, and that includes the Switch. Last year, that sold as many was co- uh, shipped anyway as many units into market as the Switch shipped this quarter. It, it's up there, it's in the top five, I think. Uh, PlayStation 4, which of course has been the the benchmark for the whole generation, has never shipped more than three and a bit million in in the spring quarter, where Nintendo shipped four and a half million. It is a really spectacular result. And it reassured me, actually, because um although we're not out of the pandemic yet, there has definitely been a slowdown. You can see it in the charts. You can see it in the performance of the market. Things have slowed in terms of releases, in terms of sales. But when you look at the overall figures, you can see, oh, hang on, the games industry clearly has retained a lot of those gamers. And there's now with online connectivity, which didn't exist when the Wii and the DS did the similar thing, there's a chance that we'll keep hold of them even when everybody's out in the world again. And i actually was really reassured by uh, uh the nintendo's financials but then that didn't stop the bloombergs and the washington posts of the world declaring video games are over well i think one of them wrote an article about people have stopped playing games which is gross overreaction to what is actually a perfectly expected drop in post-pandemic sales the the, the real metric is is the games industry going to be bigger post-pandemic than it was pre-pandemic and we're still too early to know that, but looking at it at this point in time, I think there's a good chance it will be. And that has always been the aim, I think.
1: Any ideas about who retains their, their new wave of users from the pandemic better? Like what games are better suited to keeping them around?
2: don't No, because obviously it's, it's you've, talk, you've got a lot of lapsed gamers who've come in and you've got a lot of um, sort of more mainstream consumers. Nintendo should be a good place to do it because their games are sort of, they're not quite as hardcore or as intense as uh, PlayStation games, uh, stereotypically anyway. And I always look at the Pokemon Go phenomenon, which was five years ago, and everyone rushed out to bought Pokemon Go and the result was a real huge surge in sales of Pokemon games on the 3DS. And Nintendo had been able to even though pokemon's not a nintendo franchise but they they're obviously invested in both of those games they managed to really transfer some of that audience from being a smartphone pokemon go audience to being a, a sort of more core gaming uh, 3ds audience my issue concern with nintendo is i think they have behind the scenes been more impacted by the, by the pandemic than almost any other games company now, i don't know if it's because of japan and, and the way they're set up there. Uh, their lineup of games their upcoming product which actually is the real reason reason their um, share price keeps falling is actually based on that i think because it, it was falling before their financials it, it, it's looking a little weak you know a lot of their big games are actually coming out from western studios i'm not quite sure they have things in place to. they've got a mario party game i i don't know if they're in a position to i don't think any company's really in a position to capitalize particularly with the rumors uh playstation of moving its games out of christmas because of the covid related delays although i don't know if that matters when people can't find ps5s on shelves i would argue nintendo are the best suited because they're they're the ones that sort of sit between the zingers and the play, uh playstation but i just i don't think they've got the capacity to deliver on it although i find it quite funny that Really, the big Nintendo projects that they're talking about internally a lot with their investors is things like that theme park and the movie, the Mario movie. It's interesting that the sort of the the big things for Nintendo coming out of the pandemic might be things where people actually have to go outside to go and see. But what do you think, Brendan?
1: I'm deeply skeptical, I guess, about whether the software lineup on the Switch coming up is going to be enough to keep the momentum going for the console. It, It really feels like late in a yeah. Nintendo console's lifespan where they're digging up franchises that maybe we haven't seen in a while or cared much about as much as I may personally enjoy WarioWare or Advance Wars I do not expect that to like you know be substantial for for the company so what do, what do we have Metroid I I mean like a Metroid Prime Metroid I don't dread will do fine but it might be like the Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening remake sort of thing, right? It's it's not the main attraction that was going to draw people in for this franchise. I don't view it as anyways, even though, again, I prefer the 2D uh, Metroids to the, the 3D ones. Oh, it's definitely targeting the, the
2: core fans that game, I think.
1: Right. And targeting core fans is is good, but it's not what drives Nintendo a lot of the time when it, when it's really taking off. The, the companies that are excelling in mobile, I think, are the ones best situated, to just because they're forming habits and they're habits that people can act on when they have a few free minutes here and there. The live service games, the, you know, Fortnites and Apex Legends and stuff like that, from what I understand, they've been doing pretty well this year. But, like, that's still a, what are you going to do this evening? I'm going to play Fortnite. i'm going to sit down and play apex legends for a while it it doesn't fit into a lifestyle quite the same way that mobile does and i suspect once once people are more free to go around to do things and go outside and have other entertainment options they're going to take advantage of those and you know if someone goes to see a movie for for the evening they're they're not playing apex legends they can still play a few rounds of candy crush on their phone before the trailers start or, or during the show if they're just total jerks I, th- I think just think mobile is just better situated here to like become a habit that people will shoehorn into a post pandemic life whereas uh, mo- most of the other you know companies I, I just I think they'll still wind up you know better than they were before uh, but I think they're going to lose more of that new audience but they, they can always re-engage later right so just having people that are familiar with the thing, that remember a time when they really enjoyed that brand or that, that series that you gave them. And then, you know, whenever circumstances in their life change later or you have a new offering, they'll be interested in it again. So ultimately, I, I think it's, it's a boost for basically everyone. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little skeptical about companies that aren't primarily mobile really holding on to that, that new audience as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, maybe if they were prepared, <laughs> then this was going to happen. It's a weird thing because I, I remember the Wii and the DS sort of pre-mobile, right? And uh, when that Wii and DS audience didn't go across to Wii U, it didn't go across to Xbox or PlayStation in quite the same way, they went to mobile because mobile was the most convenient form for them. And I think the difference this time is that the Wii and the DS generation had no real way of re-engaging Wii and DS owners whereas nowadays they can, because they can speak to them, they can get them, maybe they've subscribed, maybe they're in that ecosystem because of the connectivity of these devices. I also think Nintendo's products, it's not as flexible as mobile, but it is more flexible than the other platforms. You talk about Nintendo end of life cycle, you're sort of right, because we're seeing that at the moment. But I do wonder if this Q4 feels like a scrambled together Q4 lineup from Nintendo. Like this, they just had their biggest ever sales year. They're still expecting 25 million console sales, uh, shipments anyway, this year. They'll put them on a an, a an install base not too far off the PlayStation 4. So you'd expect them to have a bigger, like they do have Pokemon this Christmas. They do have a Pokemon game, although it is a remake. It will still probably do around 10 to 15 million units. They also have a Mario Party game, and the Mario Party is a lot bigger than I think we all seem to forget. Uh, I certainly do that. That game does around seven, eight million units, so it's, it's, they're not unpopular. They, they don't have a Smash Brothers though. They don't have a, a Killer. But then next year's lineup, if they hit, and I think this is where some of the concern lies in not knowing. The impact of covid on development next year nintendo has a new pokemon game sort of the monster hunter style pokemon game they've got at the beginning of the year there's a splatoon 3 which is a franchise on the cusp of being one of nintendo's elite franchises that one they've got uh, apparently breath of the wild 2 there's a marion Rabbids game and the last marion Rabbids did seven and a half million units as well so it's again not a not a small franchise they have a few more tent poles next year whereas this year i'd argue they didn't really have a tentpole at all maybe bowser's fury maybe monster hunter but it, it's certainly not in a global way I think next year looks quite good for them in terms of tempo releases, but this is where I start getting more anxious because I have to wonder if we have seen the peak of Switch. And you know what happens when Nintendo goes past that peak? Those sales fall for sharply. And if Nintendo end up ending their Switch generation, if let's say we, we're looking at a new Nintendo console at the end of 2023 or something, well, how long is it going to be before we get another Zelda or you know, or another Splatoon? Or you know, they've only just finished making them for the previous generation, and we saw that at the end of the Wii. Because the Wii we had Mario Galaxy Two towards the end of its life cycle we had um Skyward Sword or the Zelda game, these big Nintendo franchises which drive a lot of those early sales. It took them a while before they came to Wii U, and I think Nintendo will want to avoid that if they if they're going on a similar transition from one console to the next unless it's just a more of an upgrade um I think Nintendo will want to avoid that this time by by not having too many of its biggest developers releasing games too close to the end of its current console life cycle I'm probably overthinking it a little bit
0: no I think you're right like you know this goes back to the ongoing Switch Pro conversation and, and what they've got planned next hardware wise like if whatever people thought the Switch Pro was is actually the foundation of the next Nintendo generation the next Nintendo console I wouldn't be surprised to see Metroid Prime 4 end up on that instead because the releases are slowing down for Switch it does feel like the traditional end of life cycle. Naive optimism moment as you say like next year's lineup looks great and those are only the titles we know of and I say that because Super Mario 3D World plus Bowser's Fury is probably one of the biggest releases this year. This time last year we didn't know that existed or at least officially didn't know that existed I think it leaked slightly that there was going to be a 3D World remake but we didn't know about Bowser's Fury because there was a Nintendo Direct in September. Now I'm not saying I'm banking on that September Nintendo Direct that changes everything because that's how you get into the the endless cycle of Nintendo Direct disappointment. But my point is they are known to suddenly drop something that is out within six months that does change things. So...
2: I don't think we know the whole lineup. No, 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 absolutely not. I, do, I think we might know the big tent poles. I think if Splatoon and Pokemon, I know Pokemon's out in January. If Splatoon's out and there's a Zelda game, and then there's and a Mario and Rabbids as well, it's due twenty twenty two. That's a pretty big lineup for Nintendo, even yeah. by even by twenty seventeen standards. There'll be a variety of games in between all of that. Fingers Nintendo. It's weird. A company that's selling this well and is doing performing this great in the market. I think it, no other company makes you nervous about that. I don't think because <laughs> um, the thing is they should steering to switch right now they should go well we should keep this console going for another couple of years at least you know they should be looking to make sure that yeah sure 25 million to drop on 28 million but not a big one and if they can get 20 million the following generate we're under 100 you know they should be looking but we're all sitting there thinking, now no, you've got to cut your losses and move on to the, the next one.
0: I think and hope that they are. I mean, it was the Q3 financials, like their fiscal Q3 financials. So the Christmas financials, essentially, the Shintaro Furukawa said that, you know, like we're, we're now in the middle of the Switch's life cycle. Four years, that's generally rapidly approaching the end for a Nintendo platform. And here he is four years in saying, yeah, we're in the middle now. That may have been something to kind of appease shareholders, but I I quietly like to hope that, yes, you know what? They're like, we've had that first big wave and that's why it feels like a peak. We've had that first big wave of what Switch can do. And now we're coming up to almost like this, not second generation, but you know, like this, this second wave of big tent poles starting with 2022 and then into 2023 and beyond. Like, let's see what else this Switch can do, hopefully.
2: The numbers don't say that like a lot of people are very happy and very engaged with it but the machine does I mean it might be because I've got a PS5 and then a Series X but it does feel like it started, it does You know, I I played Mario Golf and I thought this game looks a bit ropey. It was already old hardware when they launched it, and I think this is the COVID effect. I think we probably would have had a Zelda or one of those games that they announced recently this side of Christmas. You know, we probably would have had a big game, this Q four, and the result is we don't have one because of those reasons. But then, how long do those games get delayed, and when do those games get delayed to a point where you go? you know what this might be a switch Two, but then maybe maybe we're making too many assumptions on what nintendo plan to do next maybe the switch 2 is in fact just a continuation of the switch the fact they've got this online service now which i assume nintendo aren't going to press the reset button (laughs) on when they launch another you know maybe these you know the games you have on switch will follow you across to the next the next machine and and it's less of a thing and it's worth nintendo behave differently to other consoles i mean it's not entirely fair to say this but other consoles do tend to rely on those big tentpole launches to carry them for christmas and then then they need another one whereas nintendo have been relying on mario kart now for 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 the best part of eight years i think um i do
0: wonder if we're going to go a whole generation without a new mario kart which would be because because there's no need to make nine because eight deluxe is still selling like we could go the entirety of the switch life cycle without seeing a new mario kart which is weird to me apart from i know there's home circuit live and there's mario kart tour
2: Well, 1.7 million units that game sold during a spring quarter.
0: Seven years after it came out.
2: (laughs) And that's the thing with Nintendo. I often get caught up myself because when I talk about PlayStation and Xbox, it's so normal to say, what's their big game this Christmas? Is it Assassin's Creed? Is it Halo? Is it whatever? With Nintendo, their big game last Christmas was Animal Crossing. And it might well be their big game this Christmas as well. And it's just the way, you know, th- those games, they sell million after million after million. They just keep doing it. And when you start adding in more and more of those games and you've got Smash Brothers doing half a million and Zelda doing half a million and Odyssey doing half a million and Animal Crossing doing 1.5 and Mario Kart doing 2 million together, you've got yourself a really sizable game launch. Um, and And you don't get that so much with the other platforms. Um, you sort of do around a launch, oddly, because um, Spider-Man is still continuing to do that sort of thing.
0: One of the things I wanted to pick up, and this kind of goes back to the point you were talking about, Chris, earlier about like oh, the negative reporting around this particular wave of financials. One of the things I saw people pick up on is Sony. As far as anyone can work out, is the first quarter where the number of PlayStation subscribers, yes, it's up year on year. It's actually, uh, I can't remember how many percent it's up year on year, but it's definitely kind of an increase of like a good few million but it's down about a million or two from the previous quarter. Now, during the actual conference call around the earnings presentation, uh, the CFO, Hiroki Totoki, said, are we looking at a declining trend? We don't think so. We are trying to analyze different elements, but there are no conspicuous trends that we can capture. So they're not concerned. But I definitely saw quite a few headlines of PlayStation Plus subscribers drop for the first quarter ever. And just kind of, again, that kind of alarm. You were saying this, Chris, earlier, kind of off air. Part of that is... It's such a quiet summer that all media outlets are kind of latching onto anything that is news. Obviously, you've seen a lot of um, outlets covering the Activision Blizzard lawsuit. You've seen people latch onto this sort of thing, or I think as you put in a group chat, like anything that Jeff Grubb says. There's a need for news. There's a need for headlines. But I do find it interesting like at a time that Xbox Game Pass and I know that's not the direct equivalent of PS Plus, but at the time when Xbox Game Pass and Gold, by extension, is growing still, to see PS Plus to have one kind of dip and people flip out, I think is interesting. Like, I, I mean, are you guys concerned by one quarter's dipping of PS Plus subscribers?
1: No, I mean, like, I, I think a lot of the PS Four subscriber base that maybe doesn't have a PS5 yet or is waiting until it's reasonably affordable or, or reasonably available, you know, they, they might not keep up their subscriptions because they're over the PS4 and they're, they're kind of done with it and there doesn't seem to be all that much of interest uh, left in that. So my greater concern is just that I'm not sure if Sony is really focused on the subscription service. And uh, I feel like with Microsoft uh, having poured so much into Xbox game pass, I think Sony uh, needs to make the PlayStation plus subscription more attractive to its users. And and I'm not sure that they necessarily need to like, just, you know, go whole hog, just like Microsoft has done. But I think people probably want, you know a little more value for it than what they're they're getting right now i mean i know i let my ps plus subscription lapse years ago just because i was like well i'm not excited every month to find out what the new ps plus games are like i like i was before and i just was like do i really want this online feature eh.
0: same i I actually didn't subscribe for years i specifically signed up last year for fall guys got to about two three months realized I hadn't played more than two rounds of Fall Guys because I am so terrible at it and I'm now on the cusp where like it's meant to cancel but I've just bought Star Wars Battlefront 2 to specifically play against my brother and I was like I should probably sign up for one more year so I can actually do that but beyond that no there isn't that impetus to stay signed up in the same way that there is with say Xbox Game Pass Ultimate which I, again I know is not the direct equivalent of PS Plus but the way that the way that Microsoft pushes it and like yeah if you're going to sign up for gold you might as well sign up for Game Pass because you get this massive library of titles that comes with it and we've we've spoken before so many people have about like the value offering that Game Pass offers there isn't that on just the basic PlayStation Plus
2: there's two things that come to mind here actually uh one thing i want to counter is that i actually renewed my ps plus subscription at the end of last year because of the playstation plus collection on ps5
0: ah but you have a ps5
2: <laughs> yeah it's right right so i know it's very specific to ps5 but that has basically the best games that came out on ps4 on ps5 so as soon as you buy a ps5 you get access i'll just down i actually downloaded god of war at the weekend to give that uh to because I never played that on the PS4 era. And those games are accessible to all PlayStation 5 owners. So they did do something, but specifically for their new console that I think is quite compelling. But the thing I was going to ask is, because I think PlayStation are in an easier position to do this. Does there a need to merge now and plus together? Because, you know, Xbox have got this situation where they've got a huge audience of Game Pass owners and a huge audience of gold consumers. And I think they want to bring those audiences together. They don't really want to be selling too subscription services that's what ultimate is it's supposed to be the combination of the two and i think ideally we'd live in a world where they just have the one and you get all of it but obviously i believe gold has got significantly bigger user base than game pass you can't really you know there is a there's a game to play there whereas i think playstation with now seeing as i suspect it's only on a few million still users that one is you know and it's not day and date games yeah i just have to wonder if it would just make sense for those two services to become one and it won't boost numbers but then it means that they're not constantly trying to battle around making two services compelling they're just going right we can put all of these games into playstation plus and sort of unify in a way that xbox are going to have to go for a journey with
0: even simple things like, and this this kind of goes back to you interviewed Sony earlier about like how they need to kind of look after that PS4 audience they've got and kind of uh, particularly like all the people who bought a console last year. Here's a bit of an oddity for you. I promise I'm building up to a point. The PS Plus collection, which as you say is exclusive to PS5 and gives you the best PS4 games. If you claim one and then play on a PS4, it is in your library because I was loaned a PS5 earlier this year. And while I had it, I I cheekily kind of thought, okay, I'll have a look at the PS Plus subscription and see what's in there. The only game in there that I was vaguely interested in that hadn't played was The Last of Us Remastered. So downloaded that, had a go on PS5, definitely not for me, scrapped it, was looking through my PS4 the other day, and I now own The Last of Us Remastered. So if that's the case, why do all PS Plus subscribers who have a PS4 not have access to that collection? I know it's kind of a sort of selling point for PS5, But I don't understand why they wouldn't give that to PS4 as well.
1: Yeah, that's kind of silly, but I I think it also sort of underscores one of the problems of that collection, and I think Sony probably knows this too. The people that bought a PS5, the early adopters, probably fairly sizable gamers, you know? Like they probably owned a PS4, and they probably played a lot of those games already. So there might not be quite as much value in it for them. It might be like you, who looked at this lineup of really great top-tier games and then decided, you know what, there's really only one or two of them there that I haven't played that I'm interested in. I'm sure the the PS4 user base, there are a lot more people in that user base that would be like, yeah, I'll pay my, my PlayStation Plus subscription fee and then I'll get all these amazing games rather than paying fifteen or twenty bucks for them on PlayStation Network now. Sony apparently is not was not interested in that. They were interested in like, here's something that seems nice to people, but other than, you know, convincing a few extra people to try and get into the PlayStation 5 a hardware scavenger hunt. I'm not sure that they're, they're really giving up a whole lot there. They're not sacrificing a lot of sales of God of War, Last of Us Remastered, that they would have otherwise made. Maybe a lot of sales of Days Gone, because I'm not sure if even the Completionists were, like, too big on that one. I find it funny that Fallout's on there. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. The interesting thing for me, I guess, is what happens next November, when people like Chris, who did sign up for a year in the initial honeymoon phase with the PS5, are kind of like okay well did i use it that much this last year is it worth it for another and and that's why i think like if they want playstation now to be relevant i think they they really do need to merge it with playstation plus somehow because right now playstation now is is sort of a a non entity sony has done a lot of really cool things over the years that they release and then just kind of forget about and the people that they click with, it's like, wow, that's awesome. That's great. Because Sony is so prone to just sort of like getting interested in this other glittering thing over there. Uh, if if the user base doesn't really coalesce around something and make it relevant for Sony and make it so that Sony has to care about it, they'll just sort of like, mm, we're, we're, we're moving on to the next thing. And I, I'm thinking of like remote play from the beginning of PlayStation 4, where you could use your Vita to connect things. The Vita itself was great, but Sony lost interest really quickly. There was an app for the PSP that would take any kind of game that had the uh, local multiplayer, which they called infrastructure, I think, and then let it connect online for remote multiplayer play uh so there were a whole bunch of games that you know all of a sudden got real online multiplayer play that were never designed or intended for them and i i remember trying that out and like wow that's really cool and i i played some tekken with with someone in, you know on the other side of the country and like i was really impressed by that sony did not care about this at all i'm shocked they even released it for all the attention that they gave to it, you know, like, hey, we just took our platform and then added online multiplayer to a massive array of games that never had it before. They didn't say diddly about it, really. I can't even remember how I found out about it. But, like, that's, that's the kind of thing they do, you know? If I
2: was going to be optimistic, because, you know, I've been quite critical of PlayStation's decision to globalise a little bit. I've questioned it. I always felt that the company was quite cool having a European operation, a US operation, and how that allowed them to be more global and to create some more interesting things like the stuff you talked about there, Brendan. But in a way, you've actually also hit upon the negative of that low regionalized part of the company is that. You get this a lot where certain regions are more interested in innovations or cool things that the the development community is doing than others and other divisions don't get behind those releases i think you know the biggest one is a great example is playstation move playstation move remained a thing in europe for like a year maybe even two years longer it did in other markets because the european developers particularly were behind it the european operation was very much behind it They kept pushing it. And in the US, they just sort of dropped it. And I have to wonder, you know, I look back at other examples of things like PlayLink and stuff where uh, a lot of the developers behind PlayLink were actually British. When When it came to it being showcased in the US, it was stuffed in the corner of E3 and you got that I know that competition went on historically between you know Europe begging the US for a bit of Uncharted and the and the US begging Europe for a bit of Killzone and everyone squabbling over that kind of stuff and it, and it might have created some interesting competition but I think that might be one of the reasons why stuff got squashed because the whole organization never got behind a cool thing and I think when PlayStation does VR this time Europe, US, Japan, every organisation will get behind it, every corner of that, because it's now centralised. So I do wonder if we'll see a change as a result of that. We might see less cool little ideas coming forward, but the cool ideas that do might actually get the backing they need, whereas perhaps they didn't exist historically. If I'm going to put a positive on the globalisation, which I'm not entirely sure is a good idea.
1: I'm not even sure why PlayStation Now is still around, actually. I mean, is it just because they spent so much money, like 300 million, I think, to get Gaikai in 2011, 2012? They could have bolted that into PS Plus, couldn't they? They could have put that in with
2: PS Plus. But PlayStation Now, they did a big boost with it because PlayStation Now was all about old PlayStation games. It was all about a way of getting PS3, PS2, all those sort of games onto the PlayStation 4. And a way of doing it, because they didn't have backwards compatibility, was to do it via streaming And then it was 2019, they added in a load of PS4 games into the service and it caused a huge spike in interest, like an extra million subscribers came in because of, I don't know what games it was, it might've been Horizon, it might've been Spider-Man, I can't remember, but there was a couple of games they've added in and they've added in more big games since then. And it just makes me think, they can generate some good interest if they bring in some of their older games into that service and you just see it with days gone actually and i I just it feels to me like plus should have the focus because it's got the biggest audience already and as you point out subscriber bases subscription services isn't just about finding the big shiny thing to drag audiences in Like, you know, that's what Halo is. Halo is going to drive a lot of Game Pass subscribers. But what's going to stop them jumping out as soon as they're finished with Halo is that when they come into the service, they'll find all these other games, there's all these other cool things, and they'll go, you know what? I'm going to hang around because there's a lot in here for me to play and enjoy. I joined Netflix because of Stranger Things. I stayed around because of everything else. And that is what PlayStation needs to be aware of, is that people might come into PS Plus to play Days Gone, but what's keeping them there after that? And the more you can add into that service, uh, the more successful they'll be. But the numbers are still great, right you know forty six million or whatever is 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 good is a good figure, and I'm sure they're very happy with it.
0: That is all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week with your regular news show. Uh, If you haven't already, please do go back and listen to previous episodes of the podcast on the podcasting platform of your choice. The ones I would highlight in particular are the ones that we have used to kind of highlight the situation at Activision Blizzard. So we've recently done ones on recruiting and diversity. We've done ones on how to kind of stamp out toxicity in your workplace. Those ones are definitely worth listening to. In the meantime, you can find more news, insight and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz. I forgot this was the podcast. Oh, (laughs) I thought we were just chatting.